Well, good morning again, everybody. Um, like Keith said, if you were here last week, uh, you know that we've started a new sermon series, The Untamed Jesus, Strange Sayings and Strong Words from the Prince of Peace. And what we're doing over the course of this series is we are looking at places in the Gospels where Jesus says or does things that seem weird, harsh, or out of character. Uh, last week, we talked about tossing pearls to pigs. Uh, if you were here, hopefully you remember that. If you uh, were not, I encourage you to listen to it online or through the podcast. I'm not going to explain it, so hopefully that just piques your curiosity. Uh, this week we are talking about a passage that sounds even harsher on first reading than the pearls to pigs, uh, tossing pearls to pigs passage. Uh, I would say much harsher, actually. Uh, you might remember I said that I read through all the Gospels, uh, the, the parts where Jesus is speaking. I have one of those Bibles with the red letters, and I read all the red letters, and looking for places where Jesus seems to say things that are weird, harsh, or out of character. And I found many places but this passage that we're looking at this morning, I would say is the one that stood out the most as like, whoa, wow. I, I said last week there's at least one passage where it seems like Jesus is advocating violence, and this is that passage. Um, so it's a tough passage. Uh, it's going to be an interesting morning, hopefully. Um, but I think that instead of ignoring or dismissing this passage, it's important for us to face it to look at it, and to ask ourselves humbly, what can we learn from this? So before we do that, let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you so much for this beautiful spring morning. Uh, we thank you for this place that you've provided for our church and for being able to sit in it with the windows open and feel the, the breeze. Um, and we also thank you for your word, even when it's challenging. And we pray that this morning uh, you would open our hearts and our ears to receive uh, whatever it is that you want to teach us through this challenging passage. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the passage that we are focusing on is Matthew 10, 34 through 37. Matthew 10, 34 through 37. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. All right, so... What is going on here? Here we have Jesus, the one who we sometimes call the Prince of Peace, right? Saying, I have not come to bring peace. And here we have Jesus, the one who tells us to forgive and to turn the other cheek, um, telling us, I've come to bring a sword, a sword, right? An instrument of death. And what makes these words extra disturbing is not only uh, is Jesus talking about swords, but he's, he's talking about using them against our own families. Or at least that's what it sounds like, right? And uh, you might be thinking, this sounds like cult propaganda, right? This sounds like ISIS. This sounds like really dangerous stuff. What are you doing, Jesus? 
Well, as you can imagine, this morning I'm going to argue that uh, the right way of understanding this passage leads us far, far away from anything that resembles ISIS or any kind of terrorist group or anything like that. But I do want to admit something right up front, uh, which is this. No matter how carefully we interpret this passage, there's no getting around the fact that Jesus is saying something very challenging. Uh, and we're going to talk about what exactly that is later. But before we get to that, I think it's really important for us to identify two things that Jesus is not saying here. One, he's not saying that we should be violent. And two, he's not saying that we should hate anyone. And I truly believe he is not saying either of those things. I'm not twisting scripture or anything like that. It doesn't feel like a stretch to me. These are two things that Jesus is definitely not saying here. So let's talk about why. Why can we be confident that Jesus is not advocating violence, even though he's talking about bringing a sword? Well, I think we can be confident because there's one other place in Matthew's gospel that talks about the sword. Only one other place. It happens in Matthew 26, and it's when Jesus is about to be arrested. It's a very famous scene. Uh, Jesus has just been be betrayed by Judas, and a crowd has come to, to arrest him. And Peter, being zealous, as he usually is, he goes to defend Jesus. And he pulls out a sword, and he, he cuts off the ear of one of the servants of the high priest. Who knows? He might have been thinking, hey, Jesus said earlier that he came to bring a sword, so I've got a sword. I'm going to bring his sword. But Jesus doesn't, doesn't respond to what Peter does positively. Right? You probably remember the story. Uh, he does the opposite. He rebukes him. In uh, Matthew 26, verse 52, Jesus says, Put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. So in other words, Jesus is saying, Peter, this is not the way that you should do things. Violence is a good way to get, your, get yourself violently killed. Uh, so cut it out. And I want us to notice that Jesus isn't just saying, Peter, right now is a bad time to use violence, right? He's not just saying, Peter, you know, I, the scriptures need to be fulfilled, so I'm going to need to be crucified and rise from the dead for, for your sins, and so don't use violence now, but you can use violence later. No, his response is a critique just generally of using violence to advance the kingdom, right? All who draw the sword will die by the sword, so don't draw the sword. So unless Jesus is just really inconsistent, we shouldn't understand what he says in chapter 10 as encouraging us to be violent. Um, Jesus would be contradicting himself. So we've got to think of a, a different way to interpret what he's saying. Now what about the second thing, that we shouldn't hate anyone? How can we be sure that chapter 10 isn't saying that? Because it, it kind of does sound like Jesus is saying that, right? He's saying that he's come to turn families against each other. He's come to make it so that a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Well, again, we have to read this in light of other things that Jesus says. Yes, Jesus says that people will uh, become enemies with members of their own, own households. But in the same gospel, just a little bit earlier, Jesus tells us, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know, just because someone is your enemy doesn't mean that you have permission to hate them. It's a very counterintuitive way of thinking. Uh, the worldly way of thinking says, well, of course if somebody is my enemy, I'm going to hate them. 
By definition, my enemies are the people that I hate, and the ones that I hate are my enemies. But the godly way of thinking says, well, even if someone is my enemy, even if they are opposed to me and opposed to what I stand for, I'm still going to hope and work for their blessing rather than their condemnation. So, he's not telling us to hate. But, if Jesus isn't telling us to be violent, and he isn't telling us to hate, then what in the world is he saying here? I think what we need to do in order to answer that question is to talk about what Jesus means when he says that he's come to bring a sword. Now, we already know that can't mean that he's come to equip us with literal instruments of death that we can then use against people, including our families, right? That doesn't work if we're going to take Jesus seriously in other places. The sword that Jesus is bringing is not an instrument of death, but of division, of separation, right? Uh, A sword doesn't just kill. A sword cuts. Separates, it divides. And I think it's very clear that division, not killing, is what Jesus is talking about here. Because he does explain to us what it looks like when the sword that he brings does its work, right? It doesn't result in slaughter, but it results in division. A man against his father, a daughter against her mother, etc. Cut, cut, cut. Now you might say, Ryan, why are you spending all this time trying to convince us uh, that Jesus is telling us not to kill people? Is that a problem in this church? (laughs) Are there people here who are thinking about uh, killing their family members in the name of Jesus? And I I don't think so. Um, uh, You'll be happy to hear that I don't think that's a discipleship issue that needs to be addressed in this church. But the reason I'm focusing on this is because I want us to realize that we don't have to ignore this passage. Okay? We don't have to pretend it's not there. We can, we can look at it clearly and we can learn from it. And I also want us to see that people throughout church history who have tried to use this verse as a justification for using violent force in order to advance the gospel or people who have uh, used it as a justification for torturing or killing people who preach doctrine that goes against the church, I believe those people have gotten this verse wrong. And I think it's very important for us to recognize that, that this passage is talking about the sort of division that Jesus brings, not the sort of death. It's a very important distinction. Now you might ask, okay, well, what is this sort of division? What is the dividing sword that Jesus brings. If it's not a literal sword, what could it be? Well, I think we can be really confident that the sword that Jesus is talking about is his teaching. Or to put it a little more formally, the word of God. Uh, There's a couple places in scripture where the the word of God is compared to a sword. Uh, If you uh, were ever a kid in Sunday school, you probably know the armor of God passage, right? That's something that always gets taught in Sunday school. Uh, And in the famous Armor of God passage in Ephesians, we're told to equip ourselves with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Uh, Another another place in Scripture that compares the Word of God to a sword was the verse that we used for uh, invocation this morning. Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, 
It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. I think that verse there really complements uh, our interpretation of Matthew 10 because it emphasizes that the word of God is a sword that divides. Right. Uh, the word of God as a sword also appears in the book of Revelation, in the imagery of the book of Revelation. Uh, there's an interesting passage that describes Jesus uh, when he's on, on, a, on a white horse, and it says, uh, out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And unless you think there's literally a sharp sword coming out of Jesus' mouth, that clearly is a symbol of his teaching, of his word. So it's, it's, it's a sword because it is a word that has a, a powerful potential to divide, to separate. So this is not ISIS-style propaganda, but it is still really challenging. Because Jesus is saying that his teaching is divisive. And it's so divisive that it may even result in division within families. And what he's saying is that if we find ourselves in a situation where following Jesus' teaching is going to cause division, we shouldn't just choose to keep the peace instead of, instead of obeying Jesus. And if we do, Jesus has strong words. He's saying we aren't really worthy of being called his disciples. Like he says in verse 37, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So to summarize where we are so far, here's how I would put it, and this is a little, a little provocative, but I do think it's what Jesus is saying, which is true discipleship causes division. True discipleship, at least often, not always, but often, causes division. It leads to conflict. And that is not because true discipleship uh, causes us to be arrogant, or because it causes us to be violent or unloving. It actually causes us to be the opposite of all those things, right? But because when we follow Jesus, we find ourselves in conflict with many of the values of the world. And if we choose to be faithful to Jesus over just keeping the peace, sometimes that results in division. True discipleship causes division. So let, let's put this in less abstract terms. Uh, for example, let's say you work for a business that takes advantage of its customers. Uh, let's say it's a business that knowingly promises its customers a product that it doesn't deliver. Or uh, here's a more specific example for you. A friend of mine, he recently got his piloting license. And when he started the program, he was supposed to put down a $500 deposit, which he was told he would be refunded when he was finished with the training. So he finished the training, and he got the bill, and there was no $500 refund. He looked at it closely, and he noticed, oh, the refund's not on here. So he goes and he talks to the, to the administration, and he tells them, and they're like, oh, oh, sorry about that. So they wrote him a new receipt and they gave him the refund. Well, my friend knew somebody who worked for this company and uh, the friend told him that they actually deliberately always leave the $500 refund off just to see if people will notice. And even sometimes when they do notice and they ask about it, when they make the second receipt, they still leave it off. Now my friend got lucky that he actually got it back on the second try, on the first try. 
Um, now, if you worked for that company, and you worked in billing, and you were asked to repeatedly forget the $500 deposit, I would hope that, as a disciple of Jesus, you would, have, you would have a problem with that. And I would hope that you would have enough of a problem that it might cause division in the workplace. right? Because I would hope that you would tell your superiors, I'm sorry, I can't do that. And then your superiors might fire you, or they, they might make life difficult for you in some way. I'm not sure what, what's going to happen. But in that situation, I would hope that your faithfulness to Jesus would result in division. Right? But it's a good kind of division. It's a division that's much better than just keeping the peace. What I want us to see is that what Jesus is saying here, when he says that he has not come to call us, uh, he has not come to bring peace, is he saying, I'm not calling you to a life of just avoiding conflict. I'm not calling you to a life of just keeping the peace. Right? Jesus doesn't want us to keep the peace with dishonest business practices. Jesus doesn't want us to keep the peace with greed and materialism. He doesn't want us to just keep the peace with oppression of the poor. He doesn't want us to just keep the peace with racism. He doesn't want us to keep the peace with religious systems that misrepresent God and take advantage of people. He doesn't want us to keep the peace with child abuse or spousal abuse or poverty or lust or adultery or stealing or idolatry or any forms of injustice or dehumanization. Jesus doesn't want us to just go into a world that's filled with all that kind of stuff, pretend everything's fine, hold hands, sing kumbaya, and just keep the peace. No, Jesus, Jesus has come to bring a sword against that stuff. And those of us who would call ourselves our disciple, his disciples need to be willing to break the peace with those sorts of things, even if, even if that means breaking the peace within our own families. Because true discipleship causes division. I think that one way we can uh, more appreciate and understand what Jesus is saying here is to think about the phenomenon of tribal thinking. Tribal thinking is pretty much universal among human beings. Uh, all of us do it to a certain extent. And I've talked about it before, maybe not in exactly these terms of tribal thinking, but it's basically the tendency that we have to align ourselves with a certain group and to see ourselves as part of that group and then to see that group as always right and any other group outside of it as always wrong. It's uh, to give the benefit of the doubt and justify all of our group's actions while criticizing every other group's actions. Um, one area where tribal thinking shows up a lot is in politics. Uh, people will decide that their tribe is the Republican Party or that their tribe is the Democratic Party. And um, once people start to feel like one of those parties is their tribe, they start to see everything that their party does and says is justifiable. Uh, people who think tribally about politics will defend their party no matter what, and they will criticize the other party no matter what. Um, now, I'm not trying to say here that political parties are never right or wrong. I'm not trying to say that all political parties are always created equal. I'm not saying anything like that, but I'm saying tribal thinking is when you reach a point where 
Uh, facts don't really matter. Um, what's right or wrong doesn't really matter. The only thing that matters is loyalty to the tribe. That's tribal thinking. And when loyalty to your tribe, whatever your tribe is, becomes the most important thing, you can justify some really, really awful things. Really awful things. Uh, some of the worst things that have been done in human history have been done, say, because people saw loyalty to their nation or their government as the most important thing. Right? Think of Nazi Germany. Loyalty to the fatherland, love of the fatherland, uh, was used to justify all kinds of things. Uh, terrible things have been done in human history because people saw loyalty to their race as the most important, as most important thing, uh, especially when they saw loyalty to their race as requiring the subjugation of another race. And terrible things have been done in human history because people saw their family as the most important thing to be loyal to. More important than facts about what's true, more, more important than right and wrong, that's tribal thinking. So when Jesus says that he's come to bring a sword of division, which is his word, right, his teaching, a sword of division uh, that can cause division even in families, what he's doing is he is calling us to something better than tribal thinking. Because he's taking aim at what, what might be considered the most important tribe of all, the family. And he's saying not even our loyalty to that tribe should surpass our loyalty to his teaching. He's saying, if you are my disciple, your loyalty to your family, that doesn't get to trump facts about what's true, about what's right, about what's wrong. And neither does your loyalty to your nation or to your race or to your sports team, whatever it might be. And when you think about this passage in that way, um, what Jesus says here, I think, actually really complements and supports a different passage that we don't usually find troubling at all. It's a passage that we really like to, to quote and you know, talk about. It's um, Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Right, what Paul is saying there is that the tribes of that time should no longer be divided, right? Um, because they are one in Christ Jesus. Because when following Jesus and his teaching is the primary concern, all these other tribal identities become less significant. And that's not to say that things like our ethnicity and our nationality and our gender don't matter. They do. Uh, they're part of who we are. But all those identities should be a distant second to our identity in Christ. And what I want us to see is that if Matthew 10.34 doesn't happen, we can't experience Galatians 3.28. It's impossible. Because in order for us to have unity through Christ, we have to be willing to put his teaching first. And if we're going to put his teaching first, we have to put all other teachings second. And that means putting all other tribal identities that we might have second, even our family identity. And if we can't do that, then this beautiful vision that Galatians 3.28 describes can't happen. Before we finish, <clears throat> I want to talk uh, just a little bit more about Jesus' emphasis on division in the family. 
Uh, my guess is that most of us don't experience a lot of division in our families because of our faith. We might, but most of us probably don't, or at least not in a real dramatic way. Uh, and if you're not experiencing any division, even with your families who are not follower, followers of Christ, uh, don't worry. <laughs> That's probably a good thing. Um, Jesus is not instructing you to purposely create division. Uh, in fact, I think it's really important at this point for us to be reminded of something Paul said. He said in Romans 12, 28, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Um, so we don't seek to create conflict, but we do seek to obey Christ. And sometimes, as we do that, it does result in division. Uh, and when that happens, even if it's in our family, if we have the choice between loyalty to our family or loyalty to Christ, we are to choose loyalty to Christ if we're going to be Jesus' disciples. And I do want to point out that there are certainly people in this world who face this situation in very dramatic terms. Uh, people who come to faith and their families disown them. Um, they're usually people who come from uh, families where uh, they're very religious, but they're a different religion, you know, and, and they say, well, if you, if you become a Christian, you have, you have betrayed the family, and you're, you're not here, and you're not part of our family anymore. You're out of the tribe. And I'm sure for people like that, uh, this verse is very significant uh, for them. Um, you know, some of us might be tempted to say, oh, well, you know, if your family's going to disown you, just, just don't ever talk about it, you know, just pretend you're not a Christian when you're around them. But Jesus is saying, no, when it comes to that point where you have to decide whether to be a follower of Christ or to be part of your family, if you have to choose one or the other, you, you need to choose me. And again, I cannot stress enough that we have to remember those two things there. Jesus is not calling us to be violent, and he's not calling us to be hateful at all. Okay? He wants us to love our families. He wants us to love people who are in whatever tribe we've been a part of or whatever tribes we interact with, uh, Jew, Gentile, Democrat, Republican, Black, White, Asian, Hispanic, Buddhist, Muslim, Atheist, Agnostic, whatever all of those people are our neighbors. And we are called to love them. We are called to forgive them. We are called to pray for them when they persecute us, if they do persecute us. Uh, but if ever Christ's teachings are in conflict with any of those tribes, we still have to choose to follow Christ, even if it cause, causes division. That is the cost of being a true disciple. You know, to put it in practical terms, if our tribe says don't forgive, we still need to forgive, right? If our tribe says you need to hate those other tribes, we still need to love other tribes. If our tribe says ignore truth for the sake of loyalty to our tribe, we still need to hold to the truth. And if our tribe says lie, cheat, or steal, we still need to say no. And if our discipleship leads to division, then that's okay that's what discipleship does. So I hope that this morning we're able to see now how what Jesus says here is actually consistent with the Jesus that we know. 
This is not a warmongering, bloodthirsty, chaos-loving Jesus here. Uh, but at the same time, I really want us to be challenged because I want us to realize that following Jesus is so much more than just religious preference. Right? To be Jesus' disciple is to surrender every tribal identity to him. And to be Jesus' disciple is to refuse to make peace with the evil in the world. So that's not an easy calling, but it's a good one. Let's pray. Lord, it can be really, really hard uh, to surrender every identity uh, to you, uh, to allow you to have the first place in our lives. But God, I pray that you would help us to see uh, the way that that frees us and the way that it empowers us to be agents of blessing in the world. Lord, I, I pray that as we uh, think about this challenging word, Lord, uh, that we would be compelled to um, take you more seriously, uh, to follow you more wholeheartedly. And Lord, I pray that as we do, uh, we would find ourselves empowered even more uh, to, to love the world and um, to be a blessing to people regardless of what tribe they are a part of. In Jesus' name, amen.